you know, as, as Christians, as we're searching the Bible for something to, encouraging to read, you know, one of my favorites is, is, is Romans 8. You know, Romans 8 is just a, an amazing faith-strengthening chapter in, in Scripture. And, and, uh, but we're not going there tonight, okay? Tonight we're going to an, another place where you might not consider as, as faith-strengthening, but yet it's kind of cool because we're looking at Genesis 8. Genesis 8 talks about a new beginning, and Genesis 8 is, is you know, basically it describes God's mop-up operation after the, after the flood. And, but a lot of really cool things are happening here, and so that's what we're going to look at. So I know it's kind of weird to think about, but next time you find yourself in a storm, you know, go to Genesis 8, and it'll give you hope and encouragement because the major theme of the chapter is renewal and rest after tribulation. So that's what we'll be chatting about today. This chapter records the end of the storm and then the beginning of new life. Uh, it, it gives us new hope um, uh, for not only as God's people, but as God's creation. So just consider what God does in this chapter, in this Genesis 8, and, and take courage. And my prayer that we as a church family are at the end of our storm and uh, the beginning of a new church life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are so glad that you're here. We are so fortunate to, to sit at your feet. Um, we, just, we just praise you. We thank you for your word and just how amazingly perfect it is and how it builds our faith and directs our lives and, and how you use that to, to just show us your heart. And so we, we ask that you would open our hearts so that we can understand and hear your heart as you're speaking to us through it. We lift tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight we're in Genesis chapter 8. And I'll just read through, because I like to read it in context. And, uh, and then we'll break it down piece by piece. And so chapter 8, verse 1. And then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 5, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned to the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Verse 10, and he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. Verse 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. 
Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Ah, amazing chapter. Lots of things going on. Let's jump in. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals were that were with him in the ark. Now, the idea here is that God didn't forget about Noah, okay? God was just remembering him, meaning that he's going to pay attention to or fulfill a promise or an act on behalf of somebody else. This to remember, it implies that he had made a previous commitment. He just does what he says he's going to do. That's our God. All right? um, Noah and his family and the animals, they've been in together for, for over a year. Okay? But my calculation is 377 days on a boat with a floating zoo. Okay? Um, that's a lot of togetherness. But... Uh, you know, and you got to wonder if they ever got impatient with each other or with the animals. And, you know, there's all kinds of speculation that, you know, God made them all hibernate and, and, and they just, you know, they, they played well with others. And, and you know, the, the carnivores didn't take advantage of the herbivores and all of that. But whatever it was, you know, there's no record that God spoke to them after he had shut them in the ark, after he closed the door. There's no record that he told them, you know, how long they were going to be in in the ark and what was going to happen. Um, so, you know, it, maybe they had an occasional fleeting fear that, you know, God didn't care for them or, you know, that, that he was going to forget them. But God not only remembered Noah and his family, but he also remembered the animals that were with them in the ark. And God spared those creatures so that they can live on, on the renewed earth and then reproduce after their kind and and as we'll, we'll see later, that the animals were included in God's covenant that he makes with Noah. You know, we can be sure that God never forgets or forsakes his people, uh, not only because of his promises, but because of his character. We know that God is love, and where there's love, there's faithfulness. He can never deny himself or his word because he's a faithful God. And he can never change because he's immutable. And because he's perfect, he can't get any better. And because he's holy, he can't change for the worse. So we can depend on him no matter what our circumstances are and no matter how we feel. You know, that's one of the benefits of, of the Christian life, all right, here on earth, is that we know that we have a faithful and loving God. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Um, you know, it was nice this week. We had a little rain, a little sun, a little rain, little sun. And, you know, so while I was preparing for tonight, it was really fun. It was, you know, watching the water dry, 
All right. Scientific term, evaporation. Right? But it's amazing. You know, it would rain, the sun would come out, and the streets would dry up. And, and, and you know, water weighs about eight pounds a gallon. Just imagine the billions of gallons that fall to the earth and then the incredible amounts of energy that it takes to evaporate that. Is, it's, it's, it's amazing. And so God knows that air moving across the surface is going to speed up this evaporation process. So, so that's what he does. God made a wind to pass over the earth. And, and you know, this isn't the only time that we read about God's wind. Okay? There's other really good things that happen with God's wind. So, for example, God's wind would bring the locusts into Egypt and then drive them out into the sea. God's wind would also open up the Red Sea and uh, then make a dry path for the people of Israel as they left Egypt. God's wind also brought quail to feed his people uh, in, in the wilderness. So, God's wind's a good thing. Right? In this case, God's wind speeds up the evaporation process. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountain of Ararat. Why would the Holy Spirit want us to know this particular date? You know, this is one of those I wonder verses. Right? You'll be reading along and you'll read something. It's like, I wonder. And so what I do is I circle it and I write the date that I'm reading it and I say, Lord, I'd really like to know the answer to this. And you know what? <laughs> it's amazing how quickly he answers those. You know? I mean, you'll be listening to the radio and all of a sudden, you know, somebody will pop up and answer the question. You're like, how did you know? And, and they'll just answer it or you'll be reading a book and you'll come across in the chapter and it answers the question. You're like, thank you, Lord. You're so good. One time I was eavesdropping, I'm sorry, overheard a conversation, somebody at a, at a different table in a restaurant, and they answered my question that I had circled the week before. So it's amazing. It's cool. It's just like, a, it's an, like an experiment. So make some I wonder notes and say, gosh, Lord, what is this? I still have some that are still circled. You know, there's a number of fish that are in a net. It's like, why is there that number of fish in the net? I still don't know. So when you come to this verse and you read, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat, you should wonder why God wants you to know that the ark rested on the seventh month of the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. It, you should, instead of just cruising through. So, if you research this to help understand this passage, we need to recognize that there are two Jewish calendars. The original Jewish calendar was, is, is we call it the Genesis calendar. It's, it's their civil calendar, okay? And the first month of the year is Tishri, and the first day of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And so this happens typically in the fall, kind of September-ish, depending on where the date falls. And so this is the beginning of their civil New Year. All right? But in Exodus, God throws him a curve. When he's instituting the Passover and uh, he, he's, he's teaching Moses um, in Egypt, he changes things up just a bit. Uh, let me see here. Okay, so here's our civil calendar. Right? And then, so the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron 
in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. All right? So when God says this month, he's talking about the month Nisan. The 14th of Nisan is the Passover, and that's what he's dealing with here in Exodus 12. In addition to explaining how they're supposed to take a lamb for each family and put the blood on the doorpost and kind of how that whole Passover thing works, God's inserting this little verse that explains that he's starting a new calendar. Right? He's starting what we would call the religious calendar. He says, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So right here in Exodus 12.2, God institutes a new religious calendar with the first month being the month of Nisan. And this starts in the spring. Now, during the, um, during the Jewish, Jewish calendar, there are seven feasts of Moses as described in the Torah. And three of them are in the first month, the first month of the religious year, Nisan. And three of them are in the seventh month, of the religious month, the month of Tishri, and then there's one feast in between. And all of them commemorate some aspect of, of Jewish history. Okay? But each one is prophetic, and if you look close enough, Jesus is in the center of every one of those feasts. Okay? Paul tells us in Romans 15:4, he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. He also wrote in Colossians, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's saying all of these things, these seven feasts, all center on Jesus. I highly recommend a deep study of these seven feasts of Moses, but that, that's another Bible study, right? One of those pivotal feasts, Passover, is not only historic, but it's also prophetic of our Lord's first coming. The Lord is our Passover, right? So the Jews have two calendars, one old civil calendar and one new religious calendar. And so uh, I'm a visual learner, so I have to lay everything out. So this is what I did. So here's the calendar, the old calendar, Tishri all the way down to Elul, 1 through 12. And then here's the new calendar where God said in Exodus, no, 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 I want, I want Nisan to be the first month. And so this is how it changed. You know, it's kind of like us adding a new calendar and we would start the new year with July. All right, so July 1st is the new year. That's New Year's Day now. All right, so we have two calendars. And so that's basically what's happening here. And so when we look at Genesis 8-4, we're talking about the seventh month on the old calendar, which is Nisan. Okay? So what do we know? We know that Jesus is crucified on the 14th of Nisan. Okay? We know that that was Passover. He was in the grave for three days, and he was resurrected three days later on the 17th of Nisan. Okay. Now, in Leviticus 23, we read about another feast called the Feast of First Fruits, and it's a, it's celebrated on the morning after Shabbat, which is our Saturday, and it's the Saturday after Passover. So that would make the Feast of First Fruits to be observed on a Sunday. Who's our first fruits? Feasts all center around who? 
Jesus. Jesus is our, is our first fruit. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it reads, But Christ has indeed been risen or raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that Sunday morning, when inside the temple in Jerusalem, right next door, the Jews were celebrating the Feast of First Fruits. While that was going on inside the temple, the women were in the garden finding an empty tomb. Right? Jesus is our first fruits. He rose on the Feast of First Fruits. So his resurrection is on the 17th of Nisan. So with that background, go back to Genesis 8.4. So the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Okay? So think about it. The 17th month on this calendar is really Nisan. The first month on the new calendar and the 17th day of the month is the anniversary of the resurrection of our Lord in advance. Okay? It's like... It's better than a Star Wars prequel, right? All right? Noah, he, he, he was the commercial, right? This is our new beginning. Noah's new beginning on the planet Earth occurred on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You know, I love this. And the first time I read this explanation, you know how you get the heebie-jeebies, you know, and the hair stands up on the back of your neck, and you're like, oh, my gosh, God wrote this right? That's, that's how we should look at this. It's just another, it's got a full set of fingerprints of the Holy Spirit that are, that are all over this book that we have in our laps or in our phones or in our iPads, right? In, this, in our scriptures. And if you look close enough, Jesus is on every page. Now, scripture says that the uh, ark landed on Mount Ararat. Now, this is the Mount Ararat that's in northern Turkey. And uh, it's anywhere between 16 and 14,000 feet tall, depending on who you talk to. And uh, it's, it's um, you know, tall and cold, right? And so um, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's where they're looking for the ark. And there's all kinds of groups that have made documentaries. There's a, a friend of ours, John McIntosh, in Calvary Chapel, uh, Lake Arrowhead, who's, who's been on Mount Ararat. He's been part of those groups. He's been on documentaries. It's amazing to talk to him, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, they're, 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 looking, they're looking for the ark. And I got to tell you, I have a never-seen-in-public photograph of Noah and his ark. Would you like to see it? There he is. Okay. All right. You saw it here first. All right. Now, when you think about it, in a sense, Mount Ararat is not a real smart place to leave an ark. You know, it's like they've been on they've been on a boat for 377 days, and now you get a hike down a 16,000 feet peak. You know, to repopulate the the earth, and and it, you know, it it could make a difficult departure for everyone and everything, and. And, uh, but, you know, just imagine having to hike down from the top of San Gregonio, right, after, you know, a year on a boat with a zoo. Um, but uh, I like to believe that the ark will eventually be, be discovered, okay? I like to think that in God's timing, it will be found and it will be found for his purposes. 
And, you know, in the back of my mind, I like to play that scenario uh, of what will happen when they find it and, 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 you know, how, you know, this group will say, oh, yeah, it's amazing, and, and it just, you know, it, it builds our faith in Scripture. And, but on the other hand, this group is going to be able to say, oh, no, no, it was left there by aliens and, you know, all that kind of thing. They're going to be able to rationalize it away. But, you know, I just think that um, God's purpose is to put the ark where it might be preserved. And so that's where he dropped it on the top of Mount Ararat, and that's an excellent place for it. Hard to get to, mostly covered in ice and snow, little decay. It's a good spot. It's a good spot to, uh, to keep it there. And, 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 you know, when you think about it, well, what else did he do to preserve the ark? What did he tell Noah to do? Remember, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and then cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, outside makes sense. Seal it up, water doesn't get in, but why would you seal it on the inside? Okay? I kind of believe that it was to, to, uh, to, to, to keep it safe, all right? to protect it. So uh, I, I'd like to think that it's going uh, to be discovered. Um, but guess what? There's some scriptural evidence that they may be looking for the ark in the wrong direction. Right? It could be east, but, but that's another Bible study. Right? Verse 5. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So Noah's going to use birds to scout out the, the, scout out the land and test the condition of the earth. And, and we know that the raven is an unclean bird. He, he likes to feed on carrion. It eats dead things. And so... You know, ravens would have no, no problem flying around, landing on dead things, eating whatever they needed to eat. You know, they do a fine job of cleaning up roadkill around here, and they know the trash schedule better than I do. You ever notice that? And so, you know, surprise, surprise, he lets the raven go, and, and it never comes back. And, and uh, verse 80 says, So he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And, and so a week later, he sends out this dove, and the dove couldn't find a place to rest. She's not, you know, comfortable landing on dead floating corpses. So she comes back. She goes, I know this really nice, you know, floating carnival cruise line that I can hang out on. So she goes back to the ark, and, and uh, Noah looks out the window, and he can still see water on the horizon. Verse 10, and he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a fle- freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So another seven days, and when she returned, what did she have? She had an olive leaf. And so this told Noah that, you know, they were making progress. He could still look out and see the water, but he knew that, you know, the trees were starting to emerge and, and there was some plant life that was, that was showing up. Verse 12, and he says, So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So he sent out dove number three, and the dove didn't come back. So now, at this point, there were places where the dove was comfortable landing, uh, eating, existing, and, uh, and surviving. 
Verse 13, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, and on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Hallelujah. Right? Now, before we move on, like I said, I'm a visual learner, so I, I like to lay everything out so I, I can kind of see it. So this is what I did. So here's Noah's sequence of events. And so you can kind of see um, the second month, the ten, tenth day, Noah goes in the ark, Noah and the family. Seven days later, the rain begins. And 40 days later, the heavy rains stop. 110 days later, the waters start to recede. At 150 days, the ark rests on the mountain. 74 days later, the mountaintops are visible. 40 days later, the raven is sent and disappears. And then seven days later, dove number one. Seven days later, dove number two comes back with the leaf. Seven days later, dove number three doesn't come back, right? 22, laters, 22 days later, the water receded. And then finally, Noah saw dry land on the first day of the first month. The land was completely dry 27 Days later, he exit the arts for 377 days. Don't you feel better just knowing that process? I, I do. That's just me. All right. So finally, verse 15, Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, and you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him and every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. <laughs> I don't know. After 377 days, I'd be just yelling and screaming and on my knees kissing the ground. I'd be so excited to hit some, some dry land. But what does Noah do? Okay. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Isn't that cool? After over 300 days on the ark, Noah's first act after leaving was to worship God through sacrifice. His gratitude, his admiration of God's greatness, he just leads him to worship God. And you know, as in the nature with a true sacrifice, this was a costly offering unto God. I mean, think about it. Think back a couple chapters. Noah was told to take seven pairs of all the clean animals, one pair of all the unclean. And with only seven pairs of these clean animals on the ark, Noah was risking extinction of the clean animals. But it was worth it to him. This was a costly sacrifice, pleasing to God. The sacrifices were called to offer to God should also cost us something. So when we sacrifice, when we are called to offer uh, our sacrifices to God, they should cost us something also. We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We read that in Romans 12.1. The giving of our resources is a sacrifice. It says, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus, the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
In Hebrews 13, 15, it reads, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So our worship this evening was a sacrifice to God. Costly sacrifices, it pleases God, not because God's greedy, not because he wants us, you know, he wants to get as much from us as he can, but because God himself sacrificed at great cost. God wants costly sacrifice from us because you know what? It shows him that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus who was the greatest display of costly sacrifice. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.2, says, And walk in love as Christ also have loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. I love David's heart. And my prayer is that we would think like David, who said that he would never offer to God that which costs me nothing. Verse 21, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. So Noah's costly sacrifice, it pleased God. Okay, brought a smile to his face. It was as if God smelled the great aroma of roasting meat. I like to think this indicates that God loves a good barbecue. But seriously, just the description of God smelling the pleasing aroma, it's a human way of us understanding a divine truth is that God was satisfied with the offering. God was satisfied with the sacrifice. He accepted it and it was pleased uh, with his people, and he was pleased with his people and their, and their worship. You know, if God refused to smell the fragrance of the offering, it meant that he was displeased with the worshipers, and that happened. Verse 21, Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, and although the imagination of man's heart is, is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. You know, God had cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. We read that in 3.17, Genesis 3.17. And he added a further curse because of Cain's sin. We read that in Genesis 4.11 through 12. But God's promises recorded here didn't invalidate those other curses. And they won't be removed until Jesus returns and we dwell in the holy city. And we read about that a year ago in Revelation 22.3, where... Uh, where, where those curses are removed. But in his, in his grace here, God decided not to add to man's affliction. All right? God's grace is amazing. Verse 22, he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. You know, when you think about it, the flood had interrupted the normal cycle of the season's you know, for, for the, that happen in a year. And, and scientists believe that after the flood, uh, lots of things changed. The, the, you know, the specific gravity, air pressure, all of these things, it, it changed around the earth. The covering the, of, of clouds that uh, uh, kept the temperatures uh, at, at a moderate level, all of that changed after the flood. Um, but here... God reaffirmed that the rhythm of the days and weeks and seasons would continue as long as the earth endured. You know, without this guarantee, mankind could never be sure of having the necessities of life. 
you know, because we know that the steady cycle of days and nights, all right, we know that the length of our day, our night, the weeks and months, the seasons, the years, it, it's all maintained by the rotation of the earth and the axis of the earth, 23 and a half degrees. We know that the orbit of the earth around the sun, 365 and a quarter days, okay, if that anything, if that changed, it would adversely affect us. God made it that way so that his universe would operate effectively. And, and although that there, there were lots of galaxies that he could have choose from, right? We're, we're, um, I'm teaching a unit in, 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 um, in we, it's the universe, right? So I'm teaching stars and constellations and galaxies. And, and uh, we have this deep sky Hubble view that it's just a picture and it has over 700 galaxies in it, not stars, 700 galaxies. And the kids are amazed, and I tell them, but wait, there's more. The field of view that you're looking at is like if you took a dime, held it at arm's length, that's the field of view that's in that picture with over 700 galaxies. And the galaxies are made of millions of stars. And you could just, their eyes roll back. And it's like, oh my gosh, just thinking about, you know, how tiny we are and how big our God is. You know, lots of places, but the Lord chose to prove, to pour his love and grace down upon the inhabitants of earth. And I love this Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's. The Lord is so arranged, the universe, and I mean every place, every part, every distance, every temperature, everything is perfect. And if anything was out of place, even where we are as our solar system in the arm of the Milky Way galaxy is important to our survival. And so big picture, God's got it all. He's got everything moving so that the living things on earth can survive and thrive. Uh, this guarantee in 822, it should give us hope and courage as we face an unknown future. God's got the whole world where? In his hands, right? Each time we go to bed at night or turn the calendar to a new month, we should be reminded that God's concerned about planet Earth and its inhabitants. He loves us. Um, with the invention of electric light and modern transportation and communication, you know, our, our world's moved away from living by the cycles of nature that are established by God. We no longer, you know, go to bed at sundown. Well, sometimes we do when we're really tired. <laughs> we're getting old. But, uh, you know, going to bed at sundown and getting up at sunrise. If we don't like the weather, gosh, we just drive down the desert. We go down and defrost by the pool. It's awesome, right? But, um, but if God were to dim the sun, rearrange the seasons, tilt the earth by half a degree, our lives and well-being will be in jeopardy. It's amazing how perfect everything is. But that's a whole nother Bible study. Right? You know, we're, we take for granted sunrise and sunset, except for Ron and Lisa Barrett, who live off the front of the mountain, and they take some beautiful pictures of the sunset and the sun. Anyway, um, but the changing faces of the moon, the changing seasons, all of these are functions and evidences that that God's on the throne and that he's keeping his promises. You know, most of the time we live linear lives is in terms of what our earth's doing. There's one that kind of throws us a little hiccup, and that's an earthquake, right? So um, 
we're, we're good. We're good. All right. I love this. All creation preaches a, a constant sermon, day after day, season after season, that assures us of God's loving care. And, and we can trust his word, for there has not failed one word of all his good promise. Amen? Amen. So, my challenge for you for this, this evening and this next, next week is next time you're in a storm, sounds weird, but open to Genesis 8. Try it. You like it. And then also, may we think like David and never offer to God that which costs us nothing. So consider, consider your sacrifices. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this evening. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your word. Thanks for your blessing on your people. I pray that the prayers and worship and sacrifices of your people would bless you and they would rise to you as a sweet-smelling aroma. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.